KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, remember how Kansas was the first state to vote directly on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe? Remember how Kansans surprised everyone by voting to keep abortion rights in the Constitution by a vote of 59% to 41%. Amy Littlefield went to Kansas to report on the election for the nation and see how that victory had been organized and won. Amy is the nation's abortion access correspondent. We'll speak with her later in the hour. Also, we're still thinking about Barbara Ehrenreich, who died last week. She was one of our best. We'll listen to an interview we did with her right here on KPFK way back in 2002, an interview about Nickel and Dimed, her unforgettable book about living on low-wage work, which had just been published. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here. Well, on Labor Day, we had an unusual political moment. The president and the governor of the largest state, both Democrats, exchanged words disagreeing about a bill permitting farm workers seeking to unionize to vote by mail. Biden is for it. Newsom seems to be against it. What's wrong with voting on a union by mail? Uh, I really can't think of what that might be. Uh, Why Newsom is against the bill is still a bit of a mystery to me and others. I mean, you know, uh, it's certainly not as if the the farm workers had been trying to uh, organize the wine vineyards of Napa, where uh, (laughs) Newsom both has some and and has friends who have others uh, they haven't so it's 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 still a bit of a mystery and uh, since Newsom quite reasonably has a pro union reputation labor day featured almost a kind of competition between uh president biden and governor newsom as to who was really labor's best friend forever uh and you know democrats have been essentially ritualistically singing labor's praises for about the past 85 years. Uh, But this, I think, takes it to a new level, and it reflects really the rising popularity of unions in general across the political spectrum. In the Labor Day poll, which Gallup annually does about union approval rating, it it stood at 71 percent, and that includes even 56 percent among Republicans. And this is the highest level uh, since the mid-1960s. So it's clear that both uh, the president and the gov were uh, kind of duking it out uh, to say, well, no, you may be pro-union, but I'm more pro-union than you. Well, Gavin Newsom may not sign the farm workers bill allowing for voting by mail, but he did sign a much bigger and more historic bill on Labor Day, which we've talked about several times here. This is the one establishing a council where worker delegates and management delegates and political delegates set wages, hours, and working conditions for the more than half a million fast food workers in California. This now is law. The law says this council can set minimum wages for fast food workers 
at $22 an hour next year. The statewide minimum right now is $15.50. Does that mean they will establish a $22 minimum wage for McDonald's and Burger King and Taco Bell? Not necessarily, but yes. I, I, I think they will. Now, it's also worth pointing out that on the day we're doing this interview, which is Wednesday, uh, not surprisingly, the uh, business interests, the fast food chains, etc., announced they would uh, try to put an initiative on the ballot to uh, uh, repeal this, uh, this law. I think, uh, I, not, I mean, obviously, I'm dead set against that, having advocated for this for sectoral bargaining as such for a long time. But, uh, you know, they will probably say the price of food is too high, inflation is too high, and uh, dump, uh, demonstrating uh, just how much money is in circulation, they will dump a gazillion dollars uh, into their campaign to defeat this. And so that will be a real battle. Uh, I don't think, uh, if I'm, I, I don't imagine this could actually come before California voters until November of 2024, the presidential election. That would mean, by the way, that workers will have already gotten their raises and uh, this bargaining will have been established. Establishing this council in a lot of ways replaces organizing a union among fast food workers that has many benefits for the workers. It's not necessarily great for the unions. They don't get members. Well, there is a small detail, which I only relatively recently discovered. A uh, fast food chain or a, a particular franchise can actually exempt itself from some of what the commission does if they agree to go union. Huh. So there's kind of a back door. Uh, and uh, I would have to uh, assume that one reason uh, the SEIU was the moving force behind this bill was that as the one union that has been trying to organize fast food workers uh, and raise their wages uh, for the past decade and has done a brilliant job of raising their wages in many states and raising the minimum wage in many states, but has not gained members, that this would enable them to finally, you know, a raise and union membership is what, they, uh, what they've been campaigning for for over a decade, and this could lead to that. And I want to go back to that um, Labor Day Gallup poll report that you mentioned. Gallup reported that only 3% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 34 belong to unions. And then they asked whether Americans between the ages of 18 and 34 approve of unions. And what did they find? Well, they found that that figure was 72%, which is, I did the math, that's 24 times the level who actually belong to union. That's three times 24 equals 72. <laughs> it uh, is. And uh, that's my higher math skills uh, mm. on display for, for the world to see. What this reflects is a huge gap between public opinion, between, as it were, the zeitgeist, and where the law is at. And in that sense, it kind of almost replicates what we're seeing on the abortion question, a huge gap between where the public is at and where the uh, Taliban members of the Supreme Court are at. The same is true in labor law, and that's what it reflects. 
And then there was some interesting news about public housing in California. The state constitution of California, ever since 1950, has had an amendment saying that before a city can build public housing, it has to hold a public referendum and get majority support among the voters. This has been a major obstacle to building public housing and has recently returned to the fore because of the tremendous housing shortage and the homelessness and the high rents. So uh, now there's going to be a uh, opportunity on the 2024 ballot, an initiative to repeal this part of the state constitution. 1950, this was a proposal of the realtors who said uh, that public housing was a sort of a commie idea to get you force black people to live next door to you. It narrowly passed and it then became a important part of Los Angeles history, which you're familiar with. It did. And let's let, let's look at a, a little of even the broader context, the, the huge post-war housing boom that followed World War II in California, in many ways is key to the whole history of the state. And clearly, uh, even as massive development was going on, the developers, even probably more than the realtors, the uh, development companies, were, were just petrified at the notion that they'd have competition for more affordable public housing. Uh, so that's where they were coming from. However, uh, progressives throughout California very much backed public housing. And one such progressive worked in the mayoral administration of Fletcher Bowron, the mayor of Los Angeles in the mid to late 40s and early 50s. Uh, that was Frank Wilkinson, who was actually, <laughs> uh, I don't know if he was card carrying, but was bas basically sympathetic with the large overlap between progressive Los Angeles and uh, communist Los Angeles. And Frank Wilkinson had uh, come up with an idea for public housing in Chavez Ravine, which everyone knows now is the home of the Dodgers, and had gotten uh, a, you know elaborate uh, uh, plans from the greatest Los Angeles architect there ever was, Richard Neutra, you know, the Austrian-born uh, Los Angeles icon of uh, of modern architecture. Let us uh, just remind our listeners what was in Chavez Ravine at this point. At that time, there was a small community, almost entirely Latino, living in Chavez Ravine. You know, most of them had already been evicted uh, or left. But there uh, was in 1952, because of this state constitutional amendment, the city of Los Angeles voted on whether to build public housing in Chavez Ravine. And how and did that turn? No, which killed, which killed the plan. And, and this was uh, after they'd already torn down the Mexican village up there and yes. were prepared to begin construction on this Neutra project. Yes. So uh, the, the Neutra project went nowhere. Fletcher Barron was, uh, you know, ceased to be mayor in, uh, in 1953. And Frank Wilkinson was hauled before the House and American Activities Committee. So that's <laughs> that's sort of the short L.A. history of uh, of public housing that wasn't. Frank Wilkinson is famous for at least one other thing. He had the largest FBI file obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. This is mostly because he founded 
the uh, Committee to Abolish HUAC, which led to a whole new effort to document his uh, wild radical ideas. Frank Wilkinson, live like him. Uh, I would add that, you know, one reason it got as far as it did was there were, you know, at that point, hundreds of thousands of returning World War II veterans and such uh, who wanted housing and the, the developers couldn't build it fast enough. And, you know, we're in a kind of a vaguely analogous situation today where the shortage of housing, uh, particularly affordable housing, is rampant throughout the state. And so, you know, we'll see if this initiative can pass. One other footnote on the Dodgers part of this story. In 1952, the Dodgers did not move to Los Angeles and build Dodger Stadium. No, this was a deal uh, that uh, Dodger owner Walter O'Malley worked out with uh, Los Angeles elected officials much later in the 1950s. He had uh, bought uh, Wrigley Field in South Central Los Angeles uh, solely to trade it. Uh, it. It had negligible value for uh, all the land in uh, in Chavez Ravine to build Dodger Stadium. And, you know, when you think about from the point of view of what clubs gain from trades, <laughs> from the Dodgers perspective, this was probably the greatest trade they ever made. New topic. Abortion rights and uh, voter registration. There's some new political intel on voter registration. A Democratic strategist named Tom Bonnier wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times. It was fascinating. This is about new voter registration since the Supreme Court repealed Roe v. Wade. He started in Kansas because, of course, that was the first state to have an election after the Supreme Court ruling. And they had an abortion-related measure on the ballot. On the yes. ballot, right. And uh, he found that 69% of the newly registered voters between the Supreme Court's announcing their decision and election day were women. The six months before the Supreme Court decision, women outnumbered men among new registered voters by 3%. After the court's decision, the gender gap between men and women new voters skyrocketed to 40%. He said nothing like this ever happened before. There's never been a jump in women's voter registration like that in our known history. It was not, nothing like that happened after the Access Hollywood tape or about separating children from their parents at the border or about the January 6th insurrection, they didn't lead to huge changes in voter registration. So well, only granting women the vote in 1920 <laughs> is comparable. But there you started at the federal level uh, from zero. So they had nowhere to go but up. <laughs> Good point. Well, then he went and looked at other states and found that similar pattern, although not as dramatic, was also evident in key battleground states where the statewide races in November will involve the issue of abortion access. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio also have had huge increases in new voter registration by women. This is not completely surprising to you and me. No. Uh, as I wrote the day that the decision came down in Dobbs, when you take away uh, long established fundamental rights from, you know, a, a major group in the population like women, they tend to notice and they tend not to like it. 
you know, looking at other Supreme Court decisions that have huge political ramifications, largely consisting of backfiring. Uh, imagine if blacks had been able to register to vote after the Dred Scott decision came down in 1857. <laughs> Good. Good. Uh, they didn't, but, you know, the backlash there led to a, a relatively new political party at that point, the Republicans, winning the 1860 uh, presidential contest with a nominee named Lincoln. So when you take away fundamental rights, and in this case, from in, in 1857, it was taking away the right of, of Congress to control, you know, whether slavery would exist in new territories and things like that. So when you take away fundamental rights, you know, there's usually a, uh, a backlash. And boy, are we seeing that with, uh, uh, with the Supreme Court's revocation of Roe v. Wade. And there's more evidence of that in a new Wall Street Journal poll about uh, abortion rights and voting. 60% of voters said abortion should be legal in all or most cases. This was up from 55% on the same poll in March before the Supreme Court ruling. How many Americans think uh, abortion should be banned in all cases? 6%. Uh, then they also checked with independents about who they trusted to handle abortion policy. 41% of independents said they trusted the Democrats. 18% of independents said they trusted Republicans. Then they asked which of five issues were voters most likely to vote on the basis of, and number one by far was the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade way ahead of inflation. Then they asked about popular support for the specifics of abortion bans currently either passed into law or about to be passed into law in the red states. A six-week ban on abortion opposed by 62% of voters. Prosecuting doctors who perform abortions opposed by 70% of Americans. Limiting some forms of contraception opposed by 78% of voters. This is an issue that is just a terrible one for Republicans. It is, you know, and if the Democrats increase their representation in the Senate and hold the House in the November elections, which, which is a possibility, essentially they have Sam Alito and his five benighted fellow justices to thank. We'll see if we have Samuel Alito to thank after November 8th. Harold Meyerson writes regularly at prospect.com. Or you can read him there. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener talking about politics, thinking about the left. Remember how Kansas was the first state to vote directly on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe? Remember how Republicans stack the deck in their favor? Remember how then Kansans surprised everyone by voting to keep abortion rights in the Constitution? The vote was 59% to 41%. 
Amy Littlefield went to Kansas to report on the election for the nation and see how that victory had been organized and won. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent. Amy Littlefield, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's great to be with you again. Well, the amendment to strip the right to abortion from the Kansas Constitution was supposed to pass without a hitch. Explain what the Republican plan was. So Republicans in the Kansas legislature had really stacked the deck um, against abortion rights, and they had scheduled a vote on this anti-abortion amendment to the state constitution for an August primary, when turnout tends to be low, and when there were some exciting Republican contests that they knew were going to draw out more Republican voters. In Kansas, about 30% of the electorate is actually unaffiliated. They're not registered with either the Democratic or the Republican Party. So these are folks who aren't used to voting in primaries and maybe didn't realize that they could actually come out and vote on this referendum, even though they couldn't vote for party candidates. And so there was a tremendous amount of organizing that had to go on to counteract um, the sort of strategic decisions <laughs> that Republicans who really have a lock on, on the legislature, um, the decisions they'd made to, to um, you know, stack the deck in their favor. And that just makes this victory for abortion rights in Kansas all the more astounding. And, and one other preliminary question, how come abortion in Kansas was protected by the state constitution? That's a great question. So in Kansas, um, the state legislature has passed quite a few restrictions on abortion access. And in response to one of those restrictions, the state Supreme Court in 2019 ruled that there actually was a right to abortion in the state constitution. And so that has protected abortion rights. That state Supreme Court ruling has protected abortion rights in Kansas. Now, of course, there are still plenty of absurd restrictions on abortion in Kansas that patients have had to contend with. Um, for example, when I was in the clinic in Wichita that I visited, you know, on the wall in the counseling room are all these certificates of ministry that counselors have had to get because they either have to be social workers or trained ministers. But the fundamental right to an abortion has been upheld by the state Supreme Court in Kansas. And so this was an effort by the Republican-dominated legislature to make an end run around that decision and to try try to convince voters or enough voters in this August primary under, you know, voter suppression and all the rest to to repeal um, that right from the state constitution. And it failed on an absolutely massive scale. And this referendum was put together before the Supreme Court overturned Roe. What happened in Kansas when that news came down? Perhaps the Republicans, the one thing that they did not anticipate was the timing here, right, of Roe v. Wade being overturned about five weeks um, before this election. And what happened was so stunning and immediate. On the day that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, voter registration in Kansas surged a thousand percent. Wow. And and, you know, what I really saw when I was there were signs that people who had not been politicized before, people who had maybe been casually pro-choice, had been quietly pro-choice, but didn't want their neighbors to know about it or weren't really doing much about it, were out 
organizing and having conversations with people for the first time in their lives. And that turned out to be so powerful. And uh, what was the message of the Vote No official campaign? It was I learned from your piece in The Nation, it was run by something a group called Kansans for Constitutional Freedom. What was their Vote No message? Kansans for Constitutional Freedom had come up with to try to, and when you say that name, it might, even listeners might think for a second, wait a minute, <laughs> that sounds like it could be, you know, a, a Republican campaign. It sort of could be anything, right? I mean, the idea of constitutional freedom is sort of a Rorschach test, depending on which side <laughs> yes, of the political yes. spectrum you're on. But their surveys of, of voters had indicated that if they weren't for a message that said, we need to get the government out of people's personal decisions and that respected that people might have a range of feelings and experiences about abortion, but that a majority of voters do not want politicians making that decision for people. They went with that message because they thought maybe that was going to convince people across the political spectrum. And so the message was really about keeping government interference out of people's, you know, medical and emotional decision making. I talked with campaign spokesperson Ashley All, and one of the things she said that I thought was really interesting is that for a lot of people, abortion is not a partisan issue. It's often viewed within a partisan frame, right? But that hasn't always been the case, right? Republicans one way, Democrats the other way, that's it. And so people are supposed to vote with their party. Well, people don't necessarily feel that way. Their views on abortion are shaped by their personal experiences, by, by what they themselves have done, by what their you know mothers, daughters, loved ones have done. And, um, you know, we talked, for example, when I was out with the canvassers in Wichita to a registered Republican who had been going through fertility treatments. She said, you know, she was trying to convince her mother and 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 to to vote no, because she didn't see a distinction between, you know, the embryos that would be destroyed during fertility treatments in that process and, and an abortion. Right. And so this was very, very personal to people. Some of our friends are uneasy about making this what's really a libertarian argument. We want freedom from government, freedom from government interference with decisions about reproduction. That is an argument that in general, freedom from government is the Reagan message, the Republican message. And some of our friends are very uneasy about adopting that to this cause. What do you say to that? I think that is a very fair critique. And I think there were people engaged in the defense of abortion rights and engaged in the no campaign who would wholeheartedly agree with that critique. And that's why I think it's so important to acknowledge in the analysis of what went right in Kansas, that there was a range of messaging that was used here and that the official message from the campaign was far from the only one that was reaching voters. So my favorite example is that a, a group of youth activists in Kansas came up with this campaign called Vote Nay, but it's spelled N-E-I-G-H. It was a Western <laughs> horse-themed campaign. They had events like Ponies to the Polls, which actually <laughs> involved real-life ponies, okay? They had this very pink sort of 
appealing um, display and graphics. They did a lot of funny social media posts with memes and they were totally unapologetic and totally, you know, they were talking about abortion, right? (laughs) They were not trying to hide that. They were not using the term constitutional freedom like the official campaign was. They were talking about abortion and they were talking to young people. And, you know, they're leader told me that they understood that people would oppose this anti-abortion amendment. The trick was they needed to get people out to actually vote, right? And so this fun, um, lighthearted campaign was just one example of another strategy that was used. I mean, there was so much grassroots messaging going on on top of that. I talk in my piece about a, a woman I met named Kathy Griffin, who was standing out on the street corner with a sign that said, laws don't stop abortion. She had herself had had an abortion many years ago. And so her, you know, handmade sign um, was one of the messages that was reaching people. I saw someone standing on a highway overpass with a sign they had made that said birth control is next. You know, some had Ruth Bader Ginsburg on them. I mean, there just were a range, depending on your interest, <laughs> there were a range of different messages that you could latch onto. Whereas the campaign to advance this anti-abortion amendment, actually, their their messaging was quite unified. And I thought that was a sign of strength, actually, for the Vote No campaign. A little history here. Kansas made abortion history once before, 30 years ago, 1991, when the anti-abortion group called Operation Rescue, led by Randall Terry, launched what they called the Summer of Mercy and targeted Wichita, which of course is where 18 years later in 2009, Dr. George Tiller was murdered. He was medical director of women's health care services and abortion provider in Wichita. Tell us about the so-called Summer of Mercy in 1991 and how it changed the Republican Party of Kansas. The Summer of Mercy was this hugely pivotal political event, the impact of which would only unfold in in the years to come. Randall Terry, the director of this militant wing of the anti-abortion movement, Operation Rescue, called for supporters to descend on Wichita, which is where Dr. George Tiller is one of the few people offering abortions for people who needed it later in pregnancy. The Summer of Mercy has been described by some chroniclers as an anti-abortion Woodstock. I mean, this absolutely massive event with gatherings in the stadium in the city. There were over 2,600 arrests during the Summer of Mercy. It was a, I believe, 46-day-long campaign of blockades. People were crawling under cars. The clinics actually heated the request of police and shut down for a week. And it was this moment where, as Thomas Frank describes it in his book, What's the Matter with Kansas, where the anti-abortion movement seemed to sort of revel in its own power. But the most important thing that came out of this event is that people were being signed up to run for local office and encouraged to run for local office. And that was this pivotal moment that actually changed the direction of Kansas politics for years to come. A lot of people were sort of radicalized by this anti-abortion gathering and politicized by this anti-abortion gathering and the speeches they heard and the rush they got from being arrested or dragged out from under a car or out of a blockade. And a lot of those people went on to run 
for local office in Kansas. And they took over Republican county committees. They took over eventually the state legislature. In his book, What's the Matter with Kansas, Thomas Frank writes of the Summer of Mercy that this was where the Kansas conservative movement got an idea of its own strength. This was where it achieved critical mass. And What I think is so striking and important to realize about where that critical mass was channeled is that it went into local politics. So in Sedgwick County, which is where Wichita is, abortion opponents had held less than half of the positions in the county's Republican leadership. After the Summer of Mercy, they surged to an 83% majority. And that pattern repeated elsewhere in the state. It, it would repeat, you know, across the country in the years and decades to come. The, the religious right conservatives who had been sort of radicalized by their participation in the Summer of Mercy began to take over the Republican Party and pull it further and further to the right. Coming back to the present, um, Election Day, the beginning of August, you were in Wichita. You went to the ref- to Reformation Lutheran Church. That's the place where George Tiller was murdered. What was it like there on Election Day? I mean, this is such a historic place where Dr. George Tiller went to church and where he was gunned down. And of course, this is a deep and important moment in, in the history of Wichita and something that people in the state remember. And so when I found out that this church was a polling place, I really wanted to be there on election day. Again, this was an August primary. Okay, a lot of people were on vacation. A lot of people don't vote in primaries. The turnout tends to be half of what it is in a general election. But when I got to this church, there were people lining up all the way through the foyer where Tiller had been killed out the double doors, into the parking lot, this massive line on a boiling hot day. I mean, anyone who's been to Kansas understands what early August in Kansas means, okay? It was hot. And waiting in line to vote. And of course, many of them understood the significance of this place. And I met one woman there who was a former friend of Dr. Tiller's. She told me, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, but I am voting no. And I think there were enough people like her <laughs> and, and enough, you know, young people catalyzed by the Vote Nay campaign and enough people of all stripes in Kansas who turned out with that memory of anti-abortion violence and terrorism fresh in their minds, even though it was many years ago, that they defeated this anti-abortion amendment. While you were in Wichita, you spent some time at Trust Women, an abortion provider. Tell us about the people who came there for abortions. Trust Women is Dr. Tiller's former abortion clinic in Wichita, which was reopened after his death. And I spent a day there the day before this historic vote in Kansas. Patients were there from Oklahoma, from Texas. One had paid $800 to fly to Kansas with her husband, One had driven nine hours from Houston and had to be there again for work the next day. One started out from Dallas at 2 a.m. And towards the middle of the day, I went over to the front desk and asked about the patients who hadn't made it to their appointments. And I was told there were patients who were scheduled that day 
who had no-showed, who were from Tulsa and Dallas and smaller towns in Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas, towns that were, you know, as many as nine hours deep into this sort of solid wall of states where there's no longer a right to legal abortion. So I think it's important to remember that a huge number of people just are not getting the abortions they need. And some of the people who had not arrived in Wichita at the clinic that day were people who were very close to the legal limit and who were probably missing their last opportunity to get an abortion. And let's also talk about uh, the vote. I looked up the Democratic vote in Kansas. Biden got 42%. The referendum no vote got 59%. So obviously there's a lot of people, you've already made this clear, who were not Democrats. What do we know about who they were, where they were? I think it will be some time before we're able to sort of analyze the exact breakdown of, of how this victory happened. But I think we've always known that pro-choice people are a majority and that that's true even in deep red states like Kansas. The abortion rights movement has understood for a long time, and poll after poll has confirmed this, that they are the majority, that most people support the legal right to abortion and disagree with what the Supreme Court just did in overturning Roe v. Wade. And so the question has always been about how to get those people to vote, how to get them to mobilize, how to get them to start contesting the base of, of local power that ultra conservatives often have in city councils and school committees and state legislatures, of course, and how to really mobilize that, that you know, sleeping giant, as it were, of the pro-choice majority. And I think Kansas shows us that that is starting to happen. Amy Littlefield, her report from Wichita is featured in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it online at thenation.com. Thank you, Amy. This is great. Thank you so much, John. Same old story, back again. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We're still thinking about Barbara Ehrenreich. She died last week. She was 81, and she was one of our best. She transformed social justice journalism, writing 20 books, including Nickel and Dimed, her undercover report about trying to survive on low-wage work. It changed the lives of millions of readers and helped launch a new movement for a higher minimum wage. She also wrote dozens of pieces for The Nation, we spoke with her regularly when her new books came out, starting in 2002, when we spoke with her on KPFK in Los Angeles about Nickel and Dimed. Barbara Ehrenreich, your book, Nickel and Dimed, is a report on your experiences trying to survive on low-wage work. The question you take up is, how does anyone live today on the wages available to unskilled workers? And the answer that you come up with briefly is that it's almost impossible. What were the rules you set for yourself in the beginning? Well, my initial rules were that I had to um, find the 
cheapest place I could to live in, but consistent with living indoors and, you know, some degree of uh, safety. <laughs> okay. Um, that was, that kind of rule got violated a little bit at certain times. And then I had to take the best paying job I could get. And my third rule was I had to try my, you know, I had to work hard and, you know, try my best and um, not get fired for some silly reason. So the first job you got was uh, waitressing close to home in Key West. Uh, tell us what the what the work was like and what the money was like. Well, uh, I think any, a lot of people probably listening have served in restaurants uh, at some point in their lives. I, I had done so in, when I was a teenager and in college. Me too. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you know what it's like. It's, um, it's pretty exhausting work. You're always on your feet. You're running a lot of the time. And even if the place isn't full of customers, you've got all your side work to keep up with. Uh, but I, I knew that to begin with. Wages are pathetic. Um, wages are two dollars and change an hour wait a minute uh, wait a minute two dollars two dollars and um in one place it was 15 cents an hour i what, place, what what about wait a minute what about the minimum wage it doesn't laws apply. how, how it doesn't can apply they pay because, you uh, servers are tipped ah. uh so you're you it's that's you know that's where your money comes from i i hope everybody realizes this the tipping isn't optional for the server uh at least from the server's perspective uh, because you absolutely have to get you have to get that to you know even get up to the minimum wage. So how much were you able to make with tips working as a waitress in Key West? Well, I I was in some pretty um, let's see dismal places, uh, and I'm not young enough to get the really good jobs. You have to be uh, young and attractive to get the really high tip jobs, and I'm, I'm not experienced. You know, I my experience is decades out of date. So I got uh, not great jobs in places with, um, one place was very slow, there wasn't enough business, I, so I left that job, went to another, uh, which was higher volume, but the tips were still awfully low, averaging around 10%. So, I, you know, I made, I averaged 7 seven fifty an hour, somewhere in there as a waitress. Did your co-workers um, have any secret economies, any tricks to making this this kind of uh, money uh, last longer that that middle class people don't know about? Well, no. <laughs> you know, I sort of thought maybe I'll find out. Maybe there's some secret to this that I can't guess. Yeah. Unless I get it out there and do it, uh, but no. I found well, you know, there are strategies you can imagine. Uh, you know, the most common one is that you have to have more than one low-wage earner in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that can mean grown children or even teenage children as well as a spouse, something like that. So you try to patch it together that way. Another strategy is um, taking more than one job. Uh, and I did try that, too. Um, and I, I have to admit, I could not do two demand, you know, physically demanding jobs in one day. Uh, I was warned <laughs> that it would, I was warned by um, a manager that it would be impossible, and uh, she was right. But a lot of people uh, do, you know, combine usually a job and a half, eight hours and six hours or something like that. Very, very difficult. But I also found that a lot of people, um, you know, that I was working alongside weren't really quite making it. At least a couple of people turned out to be actually homeless, although... I wouldn't have guessed it because I just, you know, have stereotypes in my mind of how homeless people should look, and these people look fine, and they 
you know, you can find places to shower uh, very often, public places, and come to work clean. Um, and but the odd thing was that these people didn't consider themselves homeless because if as long as you have a car or a, I mean, or a van or something to sleep in, uh, that's not really considered absolutely homeless. We're speaking with Barbara Ehrenreich about her new book, Nickel and Dimed, on not getting by in America as a uh, sort of experiment. She tried uh, living on uh, low-wage work, first of all, as a waitress in Key West, Florida. When you applied for these jobs as waitress or later a hotel housekeeper, uh, wasn't it obvious that you were a middle-class, educated uh, intellectual? Uh, I, I guess I thought, too, that there was a danger that I would be, uh, you know, that I might stand out and uh, in some way. But no, never. The only way I stood <laughs> out in every job was that I was the least, you know, always a new person and had a lot to learn. I had to sort of <laughs> kind of minimize my uh, experience in education a little bit on application forms. I didn't put down that I have a Ph.D., uh, I didn't think that would help me get jobs because, <laughs> you know, they think, what's wrong with her, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I de- described myself as a divorced homemaker reentering the workforce after several years. And that's true as far as it goes, right? You know, I'm a freelance writer. It's not the same as having jobs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and what was the state of uh, sort of uh, class solidarity and class conflict on the job um, start, starting in Key West? Almost everybody I worked alongside with worked really hard and really put their hearts into their, their work and took a lot of pride in, in doing a good job. On the other side of it, though, was that um, management tended not to respect uh, the amount of work and effort uh, they were getting uh, from, from people. Uh, and um, I, was, I was astounded, really, at how badly uh, people are treated. Um, what, do you, what do you mean, badly treated? Well, um, first of all, one thing, you have no privacy in, in uh, the low-wage workplace, and actually a lot of medium-wage workplaces, too, these days, uh, you know, from the beginning when you have to go through a drug test and uh, a personality test uh, to get the job. I mean, I think those things are invasions of privacy. Uh, on my one of my very first days at, at work in one of these waitressing jobs, and this applies to all the other places too, I was warned that my purse could be searched at any time by management. And I, was, you know, I couldn't believe it. But that's true. Management has a right to search your purse or your backpack or whatever if it's on his property. Uh, you are subject to all kinds of ridiculous rules, um, rules like no gossiping, <laughs> or in at Walmart it was no talking. <laughs> wow. I mean, you could, of course, you could talk to other people just if it was about the work in a, in a very brief way, but you were not ever to chat with a fellow worker, even if there was no, you know, urgent thing to do at that moment. So you had to sneak to do that. Or rules like um, no eating or drinking anything, which um, was really an unhealthy kind of rule at one place I, I worked, which was a house cleaning service, and we could be cleaning one giant house for four hours and be... Um, you know, not allowed to have a bite of anything or a sip of water during that time. Then there so, were also the rules about going to the bathroom. Well, 
Well, I thought that there would be breaks <laughs> everywhere. I thought breaks were all right. Uh, but no, um, there is... Um, OSHA says you have the right to go to the bathroom in a timely fashion, but that's not something that is enforced um, very uh, energetically. Sometimes you have to sneak to take a leak. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. Uh, Barbara, you moved to Minneapolis where people are nice and where wages are high. Uh, You applied for a job at Walmart. Uh, What happened then? Well, let me say, it's not that easy to get a job at Walmart. (laughs) Uh, There's the quite a a tricky person uh, personality test you have to get through and uh, i was told before i took it you know don't worry there are no right or wrong answers just whatever you think well then the uh, personnel manager came back from the computer where she graded my personality and said uh, i had some answers wrong (laughs) (laughs) what what was wrong with your personality from walmart's point of view my strategy with these these tests was to give the obvious right answer. You know, it's usually pretty an- obvious. You know, if it's a proposition in the, in the test is, I have stolen the following amount, check dollar amount below, <laughs> of goods from my employers in the last year. I see what you mean. You know, it's got to be zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or if the, the, another uh, test proposition you often run into is, it's it's always better to work when you're a little bit high. Mm, that's, not, a tough, that's a tough one to know the right answer yeah. to. But the one that I got, one of the ones I got wrong, and I don't remember the um, others quite so exactly, you have to follow all rules to the letter at all times. Uh, agree, and how do you agree strongly, and you know, very strongly up to totally strongly. And I put, um, I think I put very strongly, because I thought, you know, if I put, went too, was too blatant, they'd think I was faking out the test. But no, the correct answer was totally. <laughs> <laughs> Very um, strongly is the wrong answer to the question, how, how strongly do you believe in obeying the rules? Yeah, now see, I didn't want to look like too much of a suck-up, but you can Big never mistake. be too much of a suck-up. <laughs> Big mistake. So, uh, n- nevertheless, uh, you got this job at Walmart. Uh, you, uh, and how much did it pay? Seven dollars an hour. Now, uh, you say you made mistakes in Minnesota. What were your mistakes? I think I could have possibly gotten a better-paying job and was offered what appeared to be a better-paying job by another big-box store. Um, But, um, you know, the thing that kind of really scared me about it was it was an 11-hour shift. Now, that has to be illegal. Uh, and I and I said, how can this be? And they said, well, do you want the job or not? You mm. want to work full time or not? Maybe I should have taken that one and just tried to keep on my feet for eleven hours at a time. I don't think I could have done it though. So instead, you took the Walmart job and you went to the Walmart orientation. I must say, this was to me one of the most fascinating parts of your book. Yes. Well, you know, Walmart is more than a corporation. It's a cult. Uh, <laughs> okay. It takes uh, an eight-hour orientation, no matter how lowly your job. You know, people, greeters, everybody go through this orientation. Uh, this went stretched from 3 p.m. till almost 11 p.m. And one of the most interesting things to me about it, in addition to the cult-like things, you know, the many speeches from Sam Walton on video, um, who is dead, um, 
was uh, a 12-minute um, video uh, warning us about unions. Oh, yes. So, yeah. and, and what, what do they tell you is, is uh, the union situation at Walmart? Well, they, they said there's a danger that unions are often trying to uh, get a foothold at Walmart, and that we had to watch out for that because unions would take away our rights, not that we had any, <laughs> okay. and, uh, and would, of course, charge ridiculously high dues and so on. It was very frustrating to sit through because, of course, there was no rebuttal, no alternative viewpoint presented. And and uh, after uh, going through the eight-hour Walmart orientation, Barbara Ehrenreich, at last you went to work, and you uh, sold the, the famous Kathy Lee collection. Yes, well, I at first was quite thrilled to be in ladies' wear, thinking I would be in a position to get, be giving fashion tips to <laughs> Midwesterners who you're, you're could use some fashion tips. <laughs> Actually, it turned out to be one of the hardest jobs in the store because women try on clothes, and in Walmart they try them on by the shopping cart full. The shopping cart full? Oh, yeah, you shop with a shopping cart even in the clothing departments there. And my job uh, was to put everything back in its exact place. Uh-huh. The things people had tried on, as well as things they had tossed on the floor or uh, secreted in uh, r- the wrong parts of the department. And this was very mentally taxing, uh, John. The one, this, I never call any job unskilled anymore, uh, to learn where everything went. And then just when I had that all memorized and I knew the the whole map of ladies' wear and all the different clothing lines in it, you know, Kathy Lee, Jordache, Faded Glory, White Stag, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the manager would change the whole thing uh, because, they, you know, they just do that in uh, retail, change the uh, layout all the time. We're speaking with Barbara Ehrenreich about her new book, Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America, and uh, we're discussing her mistakes in Minnesota. It sounded to me like the worst part of your Minnesota uh, experience was not the job, but rather the place you lived in, which sounds horrible. Yeah, I thought, you know, I chose the Twin Cities because I thought that was going to be a pretty easy place to do this. You know, it's an old blue-collar area. I thought there would be... uh, nice, congenial, working-class neighborhoods with low-rent apartments, and I'd have a nice little efficiency to live in. But, alas, there were no apartments in Minneapolis or St. Paul, and, uh, I mean, nothing under, like, $800,000 a month, which was way beyond me. And I kept asking rental agents, well, what do I do then? And they said, well, you go live in a residential motel, which there were a number of, and I uh, visited many of them before lighting on the one closest to my Walmart I could find. And this this was a, a, a nightmarish place, um, as many of them are. Um, you know, it was, uh, it, it, I, all I can say, it's the creepiest motel I've ever stayed in, and I thought I'd stayed in quite a few creepy motels in my time. But the awful thing was it cost $250 a week. Mm. And I thought, I have really, really screwed up here because... You know, this is not how it's supposed to be. I'm trying to live, you know, a low-wage way of life. But then I, you know, I realized that the, everybody else living in the motel was a, were also low-wage workers. And the difference between them and me was that I had a whole room to myself. Other people, you know, whole families were crammed into um, one room. No refrigerator, no microwave, 
And that means you're dependent on convenience stores and uh, fast food for your your meals. So looking back on your efforts to survive on low-wage work, what was the hardest part for you? Was it the work or or was it life in general? Well, the work uh, absorbed me, and the work was um, always exhausting. Uh, All of these were uh, physically uh, exhausting jobs. The most difficult uh, job, physically speaking, was working for the a house cleaning service uh, where we went out in little teams and uh, cleaned people's houses. And it's not that housework is, you know, the most punishing job in the world. I do my own at home, but that we were under such intense time pressure. We were literally running. Um, Things like dusting and vacuuming became aerobic workouts Mm. in this job. And And, and also explain about the the money that the company charged the clients and the money that they paid you, the workers. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I was paid $6.63 an hour. That's the beginning rate of pay. Actually, that that would have been dropped down to $6 an hour if I had missed a day of work and and I would have been penalized. Uh, for two weeks, if I had missed, uh, you know, by going down to six dollars an hour for missing a day of work, which was a really heavy burden on the um, mothers of small children in in the group, because you know you've got to miss days of work sometimes when you've got little kids at home. Uh, but the, the, so that's what we got paid, and I overheard the office manager explaining um, to a potential client that the charge to a customer would be $25 per person on the team per hour. So, uh, and I, 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 had, I couldn't believe it, and I managed to hang out and hear that again. So they were charging the customer $25 for each person's hour of work and paying that person uh, less than $7 an hour. Barbara Ehrenreich's classic essay, Nickel and Dimed, started out as an essay in Harper's Magazine in 1999 and became a best-selling book in 2002. That's when we recorded this interview. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.